we've got a transmission coming in. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. joined by my co-host and publisher of the Infinite Worlds magazine, Winston Ward. All right, dude, here we are. New year. It is uh, three days into, four days into uh, 2021, and we are here to talk about 2001, the Space Odyssey, both the book and the film. Yeah, it's 20 years in the past now. How strange is that? <laughs> this ultra futuristic book and film. This is a really great episode. We talk about the history. We talk about the film. We talk about the book. We talk about its cultural significance, kind of debate about some of the less explicit meanings of different parts. We have a lot of fun with this one, I think. And if you guys aren't familiar with it, or even if you think you are familiar with it, I think you'll learn something from this one. Ah, definitely one of the best, man. I'm really stoked. I'm really stoked you got me to read this book. It was so worth it, man. All right, let's get into it, man. Let's do this. And will I tell you what? Let's remind everybody that they can follow us on Instagram. I am Nick the Tooth, and you are at Infinite Worlds Magazine. That's right. I saw that the now they can pick up uh, Infinite Worlds in comic shops. Is that right? Infinite Worlds number seven will be our first issue coming out in comic shops. Oh my gosh. It won't be out until March, but if you call your local comic book shop and ask them to carry Infinite Worlds, they will possibly be able to order it for you if you do so in January. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Congratulations, man. I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. Well, let's do this, man. Buckle up. Let's do it. All right, brother, we are here. It is the new year. Woo! Freaking 2020 is over. I'm so Finally, high. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't think I've ever really weathered an entire year where I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I think of all my whole lifetime, this is the most notorious year ever, obviously. Well, it's the year that proves we're in a simulation, right? Totally. <laughs> so is 2021 more simulation or is this like us waking up from the simulation? Are we going to... I mean, that's the question, right? What, yeah, what's what do happen? we have in store for us? Because seriously, with their, our sci-fi global pandemic, I saw that uh, we're so behind in America and our vaccine rollouts. They're just like, we might be vaccinated by December of next year. Oh, good. Just a whole nother year. Good thing is, is that uh, with the vaccine delays, we won't be able to get the number of the beast that is included right. inside the vaccine to track us as quickly. But, you know, it could be a good thing when we get it. I mean, things could be better, right? It's just staying <laughs> off, you know, the end of days a little bit. Thank goodness for that. Uh, just, just because... Thank goodness for Donald Trump for bumbling the rollout of the vaccine so that, you know, he's saving us from the grip of the beast. Uh, okay, 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 fuck all that. Let's let's talk about good news. How was your holiday? Oh, it was great, man. It was really cool. It was very, you know, we're in just such lockdown here right now yeah. in, uh, in Southern California that uh, we're in San Diego that uh, we just chilled. I mean, didn't do very much at all. And so uh, it was cool, man. I mean, I can't complain. I mean, to have just a mellow, you know, with things being so chaotic on the outside, that was kind of a gift. So it was good, man. Well, how about you? What'd you do? My wife and I, we just live here by ourselves with our dogs in Denver. But uh, we drove down to see my brother and his family and did like a socially distanced, masked up gift exchange. They live in Colorado Springs, about an hour and some change from here. So we did a little gift exchange and then drove back right back up here. We were only there for like an hour. Oh, that's cool, though, man. That's cool. How are they liking? Uh, I know they moved from uh, from Georgia also. Oh, they, they're liking it quite a bit. Uh, it's a lot different of an experience down in Colorado Springs. It's a little bit more conservative. Like it's like a military installation, you know, NORAD is all, all that's there. Wow. There's a lot of military culture there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they, they mostly keep to themselves anyway. If any of you have ever been to Colorado Springs, it's an extremely interesting place because it's got, you know, uh, Pikes Peak and all these other amazing mountains just to the west of it. It rests right up against all these really beautiful mountains. And then the place itself is just, you know, in Edward Scissorhands when they pan over the suburbs and it's just identical houses as far as the eye can see. Yeah, yeah. That's what Colorado Springs is like. Just endless, Whoa. endless tracks of 
prefab houses as far as you could possibly see. You know, because it's all for, it's for like the military, you know, so they got to have, you know, suitable housing and everything. So, I mean, it's for that reason, but it's really strange thing to see. You know, I would never live there personally, but it's really fun to visit. I say I, I, my brother and I plan to climb up Pikes Peak in the spring when it thaws out again. Oh, that'll be so cool, man. Is the cold not bothering you? I mean, it's very different, right? So far, it hasn't been all that cold here. And I know it's already January 4th. We're recording on January 4th, P.S. We've had a couple of days where it's been down around 5 or 10 degrees a couple of times. The temperature outside right now is like 45, and I think it's supposed to be 51 degrees today. I'm planning on walking to the store, doing like a mile-long walk after we finish this. So it's going to be 50 degrees? Yeah, today, approximately. Yeah, that's, that's what it's been that a few days here in San Diego. So far, it hasn't really been anything to like stress out about at all cold-wise, but it does get really windy here which is something oh. I, I hadn't really known about. It gets extremely, yeah. extremely windy here. Sure. You get your wind chills. Yeah, so you get, you get like really serious wind chills here. Ooh. So that's been, that's been interesting, especially since we live on the fourth floor of this big intersection. Winds whipping through here, whipping trash down the street, whipping umbrellas out of people's hands. And oh, that's gnarly. That's gnarly. There's always somebody like being knocked off a bicycle by the wind or something like that. There's all those um, mm. bird scooters <laughs> around here and there are people getting pushed over on their bird scooters all the time. Yeah. I'm getting used to it. Like, I really love it here. I, I really honestly love it here a lot. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. I love it. It's such a great city. Dude, I just started watching. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching it, but I've been watching The Stand. Stephen oh, King, I haven't watched any of it yet. Oh, it's really good. Is that a CBS thing? Yeah, uh, it's like CBS Access or something like that. Right, right, right. But I'm stoked on it, man. I mean, the the stand was such a formidable, you know, uh, series for me. I mean, book for me that, uh, yeah. It's so it's I think they're doing a great job, man. I'm really enjoying okay. it. Okay. Well, cool. I, I remember as a kid really liking the made for TV miniseries from like the early 90s. So I thought that was great. I like anything that ties all, all of the Stephen King books that tie kind of into the Dark Tower Gunslinger series a little bit. And that one's one of them. Yeah, it's really it's really cool. They did do a Dark Tower movie uh, not too long ago with Matthew. Oh, it was, it was so it was so it was so bad. Oh my gosh, it was so whack. What it was so horrible. Uh, thinking in in the Dark Towers would be such a good series like on HBO. I'm going to get so much hate from people or whatever, but I can't stand Idris Elba as an actor. And I know. So many people think he's the shit. And I mean, he is definitely one of the world's most handsome men, no doubt about it. But I, I have never seen him any, in anything at all that really blew my mind ever. And they're always talking about how great of an actor he is. And I know people really like him from The Wire. But even that, I was just like, this is just like TV to me, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of non-committed on him. But, you know, again, I'm, be, I, I'm being a hater, but, you know. <laughs> I, I was I also last thing I wanted to ask you, I, I posted it on Instagram, but I've been reading um, the first book of what is it? The Red Mars trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. Have you read that? No, I haven't yet, but I uh, am definitely interested. It's intriguing. No, it's it's really it's really cool. And in fact, it kind of reminds me part of it of today's uh, story of 2001 Space Odyssey okay. of the book. And so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about why, but I'm, 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 I'm like halfway through the first book and I'm really enjoying it. It's really cool, man. It's, I'm digging it. It's, it's, it's one of those books, it's, it's hard science and it is where they go to Mars and it also has like some drama like between Pete couples and all this shit. So it's good, man. I'm really, like I said, hard science kind of with a little bit of, I wouldn't call it space opera, but I'd call it more like soap opera, but it's okay. cool. I'm enjoying all it. Right. So check it out. Anybody want to... Uh, the Red Mars trilogy. Yeah. If anybody's read it, uh, hit me and let me know what you think about the other books too. One of our listeners actually um, uh, suggested it to me. Okay. So I was cool. Yeah. I'm actually reading right now. I'm uh, double fisting. I'm doing uh, The Lathe of Heaven, which you recommended to me. How do you like it? So far, so good. I'm only about maybe a fifth of the way into it so far, but it's definitely a great okay. setup. As always, Le Guin is crushing it with her writing. <sighs> She's awesome. And I'm reading um, Ring World by Larry Niven. Oh, how is that? So far, it's pretty that to me. highly entertaining science fiction. It kind of reminds me a bit of Douglas Adams. It's not anywhere near as like intentionally comedic. You know, it's not like written to be comedy, but it's very yeah. lighthearted and kind of fun and pretty whimsical in ways. And it's got a real fast pace to it. It's real upbeat. It's just one of those ones that's on the pantheon of great science fiction novels. So I just decided I absolutely had to read it. You know, I hadn't read yeah. it yet. 
And so far, it's pretty entertaining. Is that a series? Yeah, I believe it did. Uh, there were sequels to it. Um, and there, definitely okay. there are, because one of the characters in it, uh, the Kazims, is an alien race. They're a race of like large cat people, like large lion or tiger people. And the book takes place after humans and Kazims have been at war for a long time, but they finally stopped being at war and are peacefully cohabitating-ish. And I do know that there are a ton of books about the human Kazim wars that Larry Niven wrote as well, although I haven't read any of those, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I haven't really gotten to exactly what's happening yet. It's, it starts off keeping you in the dark a bit, but we'll see. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, let's jump into it. 2001, A Space Odyssey. This has actually been kind of a journey for me because although I've seen the film numerous times, I hadn't read the book and reading the book was, it was mind blowing. I was like, oh, yeah. oh I should have read this a long time ago. I found it entertaining and, I, and it definitely was a, a, a necessary for me companion piece to the movie. But I know there are some people that disagree with that. The, the naysayers. Well, okay. A little history. That's how we like to do these things, right? Mm-hmm. Hot off the heels of Dr. Strangelove, Stanley Kubrick was considered to be probably one of Hollywood's most sought after directors. Like he basically was given carte blanche to make whatever movies he wanted because that movie was considered a bit of a gamble and it paid off a ton. So they were like, okay, make whatever you want. So he, what he did was he got interested in science fiction. It was the early 60s. This happened right after 1964. The space race was in full heat. People were sending satellites out into space. The Soviet-US space race was a big deal. And he kind of became obsessed with aliens and was like, I, I need to do something in that vein because I don't feel like there are any really great movies that exist in that genre. And, you know, he's such an auteur that he did and probably still does have higher standards than all of the directors that have come during his time and since even, because he's known to have been incredibly demanding of his actors, incredibly demanding of all of his crew just to get the right thing, having people do the same take dozens of times, that kind of thing. Anyway, he doesn't know where to start, though, because, you know, he's not uh, steeped in science fiction lore, uh, so to speak. You know, he's uh, mostly been a serious film director up to this point. So uh, a friend of his recommends that he speak with Arthur C. Clarke, who was a very well-known, very established science fiction director from Britain. At the time, Arthur C. Clarke was probably best known for releasing a book about 10 years before they ended up meeting called Childhood's End. And uh, Childhood's End, if you haven't read it, is a spectacular book. Excellent 50s science fiction really mature science fiction. I love that story. Did you see the series? I've never seen the series, but <laughs> I haven't read the book. When I, when I was a kid, we've talked about this on, I think we've talked about this on previous episodes, but I know I've talked about it online a lot. When I was a kid, one of the first books I came across that really, really got me hooked on science fiction was Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. Wayne Barlow, the artist, had read all these science fiction books growing up, and he illustrated species from the different stories. One of the characters in the thing that I was most interested in was the overlords, and that's the alien species from the Childhood's End books. And Amazing, right? <laughs> really, really made me go, what the hell is this? And what's really funny about it is after reading the book, I learned that you know the appearance of the overlords was kept secret from humans because it was so shocking. And yeah. Barlow rendered it in such a way that even as a kid, I found it, I was like, whoa, what is this? And it got me interested in reading the book. So it was almost like a reverse effect of what the book intended. So Arthur C. Clarke was a pretty well-known science fiction writer at this point, even though his science fiction books had been very successful in the science fiction world. We've talked about this before. Being a successful science fiction writer didn't necessarily equate to being a wealthy person. You could sell a lot of science fiction books and still not crack the New York Times bestseller lists at all, you know? Yeah. It was still considered an obscure genre. Okay, so anyway, Kubrick approaches Clark and says, I want to make a science fiction film unlike any science fiction film before ever, and I want it to have incredible scope, and I want it to be about all of these larger-than-life ideals. Clark loved the idea of contributing to this. He was like, oh, this, this sounds like a great plan. Let's, let's definitely do this. They were basically, at the time, planning to co-write a novel together. Which is crazy. Yeah. What a crazy idea. What, what director approaches. And what, what novelist is like, yeah, okay, I'm going to collaborate with you, your director. That's, I would be like, that's your sandbox. This is my sandbox. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. But 
Stanley Kubrick at let's I don't know the actual figures here, so I'm not going to try to do it. But Stanley Kubrick was a wealthy multimillionaire studio mogul with tons of power. And Arthur C. Clarke was a middle class guy in relative obscurity. No, it could definitely I don't want to I don't yeah, I shouldn't denigrate it because there was definitely the opportunity to pay bills. Right. Exactly. And, you know, he, he was basically like, OK, well, this could work out for me as a great windfall. Plus, he had respect for Kubrick. The two met and they Kubrick being a notoriously difficult person. He's always known his whole career as being a very difficult person. The two actually did become friends. So they started writing this book together. And the original plan was to do this, was to write the book together and release it as the book by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. Then use the book to create a screenplay and release the screenplay would then be written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke flipping their names to indicate their areas of expertise, so to speak. Gotcha. But that's not what happened at all. Even though Stanley Kubrick promised Arthur C. Clarke that they would release the book first and then the movie would be the film adaptation of the novel, it actually didn't work that way. And the reason is because Stanley Kubrick demanded final approval of any pages that Clarke wrote. So even though Clark was doing, uh, even though, yeah, so even though Clark was doing all of the writing, Kubrick would have final say over whether or not it made it into the final version of the book. And even though the two disagreed on several things, they eventually found a path where Clark could have the book be more or less his way. Once they agreed on the, the overall plot and all the different key plot points that Clark could have the book this way and Kubrick would do the film his way. But in agreeing to that, it delayed the release of the book until after the film came out. So the film comes out, 1968. By this time, um, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick had been working together on this project for more than four years, and Clarke had the book ready to go by the time the film comes out, but he's not allowed to release it yet. They go see the initial screenings in New York, and it is jeered. People hate this movie. Really? Oh, oh my God. So th- this movie is pan- wow. panned by the critics in New York and the critics in Washington and the critics in L.A. They all they all pan it. People walk out of the debut in New York at the, the one Arthur C. Clarke is at. He witnesses so many people get up and walk out that he actually leaves at the intermission crying because he, wow. thinks, he thinks his whole career has been ruined. Because he's seeing all these people react so negatively to this movie that he just spent four years and like he has he hasn't had any income this whole time because he's been focusing his attention on this book. And he's at this release watching people hate the movie. So he is thinking that he is going to now follow up with a to a universally reviled movie with a novelization of a movie that people didn't even like in the first place. So uh, he is just super distraught. Holy moly. A couple of weeks go by and the ticket sales start ticking up. And then they realize that young people absolutely love this movie. That even though the film critics, who I'm going to just go ahead and say were a bunch of stuff shirt dummies, hated the movie, the young people who went and watched it in real time came away from it with the exact right impression of it. They saw all of the surrealism and the avant-garde stuff as a young person in 1968 might. This was, you know, 1968 was the year of Woodstock, and it was the year of, you know, a lot of mind-altering and mind-expanding both substances and conversations among young people. So young people were open-minded, and they took the movie without listening to the critics. And then it became, after a few weeks of slowly trending upwards, became the highest-grossing movie of 1968. It ended up making a fortune. And then eight or nine months later, when the book finally was released, it had massive sales. And in fact, nine months later, the book, when it was released, was panned by critics because it explained too much. The movie, nine months earlier, had been panned for being too cryptic and inexplicable and just confusing. And then when the book is released, nine months later, it gets panned for doing the exact opposite because the mystique and the mystery had become part of the story of 2001, even though the critics didn't get it when it was first released. Wow, that's crazy. That had, can you imagine like, like working on something that long and then all of a sudden just realizing, oh my gosh, or at least having the initial feeling like this is going to 
bomb. Not only the project is going to bomb, but my entire career is going to be tanked. You had to be distraught. And then to have it reversed. Uh, it's really you know? hard to imagine. I've never worked on anything for four and a half years and not been able to make money doing something else in the meantime. You know what I mean? And have it fail. I've had plenty of projects, long-term projects, never even see the light of day. You know what I mean? I wrote a, my first book is still sitting on my, I have like paper copies sitting around, but I never tried to publish it. Because I just realized after several years of working on it that it just wasn't any good. I finished it, but it wasn't great. You know what I mean? Every writer has us. That's, sure, that's sure. The name of the game. But meanwhile, I was making money doing other stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like I was doing my regular job. So it wasn't like even at the end of it, it failed. And also, I sank all of my money and time into it. It was more like <sighs> something I was doing on the side didn't work out. Yeah. Well, I tell you, what's so crazy about this story that you're talking about is this interplay between Clark and Kubrick, because Kubrick, I am just a fanatic for Kubrick because I'm a photographer. You know, that's something that I did for a while. And um, and he started out to understand Kubrick. You have to understand that he was a photographer first and foremost. And he was such a good photographer that at 17, he was brought on board full time as a photographer for Look Magazine. Wow. Just like Time, yeah, like Life Magazine, that kind of a thing. And so, uh, I mean, that was as far as credibility, I mean, at 17 years old. So he had this just meticulous mm -hmm. eye for detail that really it's it, photography it lends itself so much to cinematography because it's really when you're framing a shot and you're looking at that's what a cinematographer is first and foremost when he's doing what they call blocking he's looking at everything through the eye of a photographic lens as far as you know metaphorically right and so Kubrick had this he, he was a, a, at 17 he was a photographer for look magazine and after that he started realizing wait a minute I can make money doing like short documentaries he had never worked with film at all but you have to understand that he is such or was such a perfectionist that he's the kind of person that I can like when you're saying that that he demanded approval for every one of these pages. No question. That's the kind of person. Absolutely. When the telegram was sent uh, or postcard or whichever it was, was sent to Clark, he replied with something to the effect of, I'm very interested in working with this tyrant and just curious to see what it's like to work with a tyrant or something like that. Basically referred to him as a tyrant, knew going in that that's what he was like. Yeah. Because the rumors yeah. were already abounding for his behavior. Oh, he's a lunatic. And um, and so after after um, he did a few short documentaries, he raised money and did like a couple really, really, really low budget films, mm -hmm. um, but kind of cut his teeth that way. And then I think Spartacus is what uh, Kirk really shot him into the. Yeah, which gave him a whole lot of credibility. Well, he's got a career like no other as far as a director goes, because he made a few studio style pictures earlier in his career, like The Killing and then Spartacus. But then after the success of Spartacus, he only made films he wanted to make. After that, it was not like a studios hiring him to make this adaptation of or whatever. Like he was almost independent of the studios in that they were he was not beholden to them to decide his projects. Dude, he was such a psychopath that he, he after working in in the studio system he decided that he was going to move to to england so that he didn't have to deal with it anymore right. and that's what he did directors don't typically aren't able to do that you know what i mean at least no. not and not stay successful in the mainstream no and he didn't film your movies over there because he wouldn't leave. Well, it's because he wouldn't, he wouldn't fly. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke both wouldn't fly. And, and think about this, Winston. There's no Zoom calls then. There's no email. There's not even fax machines. So when he's doing all this, everything has to, all this correspondence is either telephone or snail mail. I mean, can you imagine working in the Hollywood system and being all the way in England? It had to be, he really did have to be one of the most eccentric directors that ever lived. I watched a documentary a few years ago on him. Mm -hmm. Do you know what he would do? Like every day, his biggest hobby was? What's that? He would walk around London and go to stationery stores. And he loved stationery. Interesting. And so, he, yeah, he would buy stationery. And so imagine he's going out every few days and buying stationery. He has warehouses full of stationery. Wow. That he's never using. 
<laughs> he just likes it and likes knowing that he has it. Man. Complete freaking lunatic. And uh, so, but it's important when you watch the his movies, not just 2001, but especially 2001, you can almost stop every single shot and just pause it and look at it and look at the symmetry of the shots and look at how he's framing and blocking. It's amazing. And it really did set the standard for great, great, great cinematography. When we're talking about the 2001 specifically, we should definitely talk about some of the other creative forces involved that help make 2001 what it is. Uh, Obviously, we all know that Stanley Kubrick, the masterful director, would go on to make, you know, to basically bat a thousand for the rest of his career after that. So, you know, he obviously was a big part of that. And Arthur C. Clarke's sci-fi ideas the story that this was all based on, 2001 was based on, loosely based on a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel, which had mm. some of the same elements. And other elements were included from different short stories to bulk it up. Have you read it? I've never read it. No, I haven't. When okay. I saw this, I was like, ooh, I need to find that short story. But I could not, I wasn't able to get a hold of a collection of his short stories over the past. Gotcha. Year. So though I have not read it, unfortunately. But I did read the synopsis and it's similar in some respects. Okay. But we also need to talk about, for example, Douglas Trumbull. Douglas is the special effects coordinator for 2001 A Space Odyssey. He also did a number of other pretty well-known movies. He did Silent Running, if you ever saw that one, or Brainstorm from the 80s, a number of other ones. But he was just like a really gifted special effects coordinator. He also directed some movies and everything. He actually directed Silent Running. He also did Close Encounters. He did Blade Runner, Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, Definitely a really ahead of his time special effects coordinator. Here's how I think about that. Um, I just bought a 4K TV not long ago on, and um, I've been going through and rewatching movies in 4K that I've I've seen a million times already just to see if I could see any differences and that kind of thing. And I recently rewatched the original Star Wars trilogy again. And those look beautiful. They're beautiful movies. Don't get me wrong. They're all very excellently filmed movies with great special effects. But then in preparation for this podcast, I rewatched 2001 again, and it looks much better than the Star Wars movies. Much better. The effects are way more convincing to me. And it came out nine years before Star Wars. And, and, you know, I challenge you guys out there. I mean, obviously, what with it being a Kubrick thing and a Doug Trumbull thing, it's going to have that expectation, you know, and uh, the expectation is built off of their successes, including 2001. Let me tell you something. Okay. I think it was like six, seven years ago. There, there's a theater in, um, in Santa Monica called Arclight. And they show like old movies and they, when they show a movie, they're showing it in like 35 millimeter, the way it was originally broadcast. Dude, it was so mind blowing to watch the cinematography in this movie was so immersive. It was especially the back half of the movie. I was so baked. I was losing my mind. I mean, I made sure and sat like six rows back and I was just like, holy shite, this is amazing. So, and, and, and again, though, it, it, it really has to do with how, what a perfectionist Kubrick was before in pre-production. Dude, he was on the phone all the time with NASA scientists. All the time. And then with the, with, with the special effects guys, just building sets, building how, figuring out how are we going to build like a gyroscope that's going to mimic this and this in space. I mean, it's crazy. I'm really glad you talked about that, about going and seeing it baked, because that's another topic I really wanted to talk about with this movie was the psychedelic nature of not just the filmmaking but the story itself. And you just read the book. So you'll listeners who haven't read the book and don't want any of this stuff spoiled for them. If you've seen the movie and would like for it to remain very mysterious, I think I would stop listening to this podcast episode now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So in the movie, the eight people, the proto humans come out of their cave one day to find this black obelisk monolith out in front of their cave. And after a while of it being there, the idea comes across one of them to use weapons. And it's sort of like vaguely implied that the uh, monolith had something indirectly to do with that connection being made in the ape man's mind. In the book, it explains explicitly that the monolith is intentionally entering the minds of the proto-humans and intentionally teaching them tasks. 
and intentionally showing them how to evolve. It talks about them entering a hypnotic stupor and doing things that they didn't know that their bodies were capable of doing. And it demonstrates that an alien race is intentionally trying to plant these seeds of intellectual growth into the minds of these proto-humans. That whole sequence is extremely psychedelic in the book, in the movie as well, but in the book because... It really rings a little bit close to the stoned ape theory. Oh, yeah, for sure. Have we talked about the stoned ape theory on the podcast before? I don't know if we have. Well, the idea behind the stoned ape theory is this. Apes would follow animals and in following behind these animals and tracking them, they'd come across their droppings and out of animal droppings often grow mushrooms. And the idea behind this theory is that these bands of early, early, early humans or proto-humans would eat the mushrooms out of the droppings to sustain themselves while they hunted. But occasionally these would be psychedelic psilocybin mushrooms and they would unknowingly dose themselves with hallucinogens. And And while on the hunt and, you know, in the midst of doing something necessary for their survival. So the theory goes that this mind altering experience eventually led humans to what we refer to as creativity and that creativity is a byproduct of these early apes accidentally tripping on mushrooms as they track down animals and that our human society evolved from the apes that had had their minds expanded the most. And science, some scientists say that this accounts for the sudden growth in our brain sizes over the course of relatively few generations at the time. This is a Terrence McKenna, right? I'm, I've got it right here in front of me. Let me look it up. Yeah, I think it's Terrence McKenna who uh, was a big proponent of this theory. Yeah. There's no evidence to prove it, but it is interesting. It's fun. It's a fun, like, oh, wow. Well, it does make sense. I treat it entirely as a theory. There's never going to be a way we're ever going to be able to prove it, I don't think. Uh, well, 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 I could get I could get a monkey, right? I've been telling my <laughs> wife, I want to get a monkey, and I want to get a monkey. I already told her, I said, listen, I want to move to Portugal, and I want to start a monkey cult. And I'm going to have second in charge is going to be a monkey. And then all the members are going to be, uh, we'll call them monkeys, but it's going to be a fun cult and everybody's going to have fun and everybody can just do whatever they want. But I told her that I was like, listen, we can give the monkey psilocybin and then it'll start talking. Right. And that's the one way to test it. <laughs> or at very least keep a family of monkeys dosed for you know, two hundred generations. And, <laughs> yeah, that's and, true. That's just and see if that and see if that happens. <laughs> but you know, of course, totally a theory. Who knows? But the idea behind the theory is such that nature and the universe itself provided the tools and the key to unlock the door to the imagination, as it were. And the the imagination is what triggered most of human society because without the imagination, you can't even have the most simple of inventions. And that's what in 2001 it says. Moonwatcher, who's the, the leader of that particular group of proto-humans, I don't think he's named in the movie, but he is in the book, basically has the breakthrough to just use a stick as a weapon, which until that time in all of proto-human history had not been a thing anybody had ever done. And it's a very simple idea, but it did require imagination. It did require him to think, what would happen if I hit this with that? Yeah. So I think 2001 plays into that. I don't know if it's necessarily directly related to the Stone Ape theory. In fact, I doubt it. But it's, you know, it's it's interesting because there is a corollary there. As I was reading the book, you know, you talked about how, you know, this sequence and that sequence, I really broke the book out into three different sequences. Mm-hmm. And this first one, very obviously was about the apes and it reminded me of like what was it jack london's call of the wild or whatever with the the dogs oh yeah is that do i got that right just where animals uh, were giving them human characteristics and that's what it kind of felt like to me and uh i thought it was cool but it was just so different it was very different than the movie because it was longer and Absolutely. it was more it was more much more in depth and there was much more story the intro to the movie might be 10 or 15 minutes long. And the Moonwatcher intro to the book is probably 70 pages or something like that. Yeah. Approximately. And uh, yeah, there's a lot more to it. It explains a lot more. I think it's a tricky subject to write about because it especially would have been a 
tricky subject to write about because what do we really know about when humans became humans? You know, when at some point apes did start behaving more like humans. And was it a gradual thing? Was it an overnight thing? Was it just a certain group of apes? Or was it the same species of apes across a large area? Or is it just... I think it's fascinating to think about, you know, I love like thinking about evolution and uh, adaptation. But if you think about it, it's like these changes were really mutations. Right. That so many of those mutations cause death and disease and cancer or whatever, whatever the mutation is. But here's one that was intelligence right. or maybe a larger, you know, prefrontal cortex of the, of the brain. Right. That, that to me is crazy cool. And what caused it, right? Was it, you know, an epigenetic response to these mushrooms? I don't know. It's cool, though. Like I say, I doubt we'll ever know exactly what happened. Maybe it was eating an apple out of a tree and it gave you all of the sin of knowledge and then you were cast out of the Garden of Eden because of it. I don't know. There are lots of different theories, some that make sense and some that don't. (laughs) But, you know, uh, we're never going to know. This kind of goes back to my general outlook on life. And people always say, you know, are you an atheist? And the question is, or the answer to that is always the same, is that, no, I'm an agnostic, just like you, just like everyone. Yeah. I believe everyone's an agnostic because there's no way to know. Yeah. You might feel like you know, but you don't actually know. Yeah. Atheism precludes open-mindedness, and I just don't think that makes sense. It's just another ism. Exactly. Yeah. If there's a God, it could be the beings that set up this whole monolith situation in order for David Bowman to evolve and then eventually. So David Bowman is the astronaut. Right. David Bowman's the only surviving member of the Discovery spacecraft that HAL 9000 attempts to sabotage. That's right. Okay, so let's go into the second part. Well, in the second part of the book, it's three million years after the events of uh, Moonwatcher and his proto-human people. Human society has developed to the point where we have uh, space travel. What they do is they go to the moon, and on the moon they find an electromagnetic pulse. They trace the pulse and find buried 30 feet below the moon's surface another monolith. And it is perfectly concealed. It looks like it's in perfect shape, no damage over three million years. They know it's been intentionally buried because it's 30 feet below the surface. And then the second part of the book is about a government official traveling from Earth to the moon station to observe this newly discovered thing and find out what they can tell people back on Earth. It's the first ever sign of extraterrestrial life, except for the monolith from the beginning of the book, which no modern human would have any way of ever knowing about. Then something really interesting happens when the sun rises on the moon and touches the monolith. It lets out a signal, both an audible audio signal and an electromagnetic pulse. And that's how where that section of the book ends. That's, I guess, the second of four sections. The next section is a few years later, and that's when the Discovery, which is an advanced deep space craft, is flying out towards, well, the destination is different in the book and the movie, but it's flying out towards a moon of one of the the central planets in our solar system. Yeah, I think they're going to Saturn, but they changed it to Jupiter, right? Yes, right. Along the way, the ship's AI computer realizes that something is going wrong. He's Basically, the ship's AI has been told to keep the crew in the dark about the true nature of their mission. And they don't realize that they're going out to investigate another signal coming from this moon. They don't quite know what their mission is exactly. Meanwhile, HAL, their super intelligent computer, has, I guess what you would call a a logic error in his system, trying to balance his duties of fulfilling the mission and keeping it a secret from the crew. Because of that, he basically goes insane. Because of that that difficulty that he had with lying, right? Right, They they asked him to lie and it made him go crazy. Exactly. And because, you know, that's not part of his original programming. And, you know, the NASA scientists did not weren't able to account for that or the scientists back on Earth. I don't think it's NASA, actually. Yeah. The scientists back on Earth aren't able to account for what caused this. What's really great about this is that it's an all too um, human problem to have. <laughs> right. You can really relate to Hal because the problem he's experiencing is one that any person would have difficulty doing without being considered to be a bad guy. It's really funny, actually, because it's a really similar situation happens in Alien and Aliens. The crew of the two ships from those movies, the Nostromo and the, um, oh, what the hell's the name of it? I can't remember. Anyway, the, the ship and the Aliens that they send out both have a secret covert mission 
and they have crew members hiding that from them. Dude, this movie is so influential. Super, in super yeah, exactly. Super influential about a lot of these kind of nuanced plot points. Science fiction really um, followed these questions for a long time after this movie came out. And I think, it, you know, when you watch the movie, it's really important to understand the context of when the movie came out. This was when we we're just coming in. Remember the space race that consumed the world between us and the Soviet Union at the time. And so he, because they just set out to meticulously show what space could really be like, for me, like watching it in the theater, that part of it was kind of boring. But I I really had to put myself back to, wait a minute, this is almost like an IMAX type experience where you're for the first time getting to feel what it would be like to go into space. And I think that this was probably the first movie to really nail that, you know, from a science fiction perspective. Absolutely. Well, it has to do with the fact that Arthur C. Clarke, besides being a science fiction writer, is a science writer as well. He's well-versed in science and knows a great deal about it. So um, he was able to get a lot of the facts right. And when you read the book, you do read a lot of science in the book. You know what I mean? There is quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So this part of the book reminded me, I'm always making, I'm always jumping back and going, what does this remind me? It was this book, part of the book reminded me of The Martian by Andy Weir, which oh, was okay. an amazing book. Um, it, the, that book is, uh, did you read it? It's, oh, yeah, I've read the book and seen the movie. I think both are great. Uh, dude, also yeah. directed by Ridley Scott, wouldn't you know? I got to watch that movie again, but the book I've read a few times. It's so good. But it just very, very hard science where they're just setting, you know, they're just setting out this is a problem that you encounter in space. This is how you deal with it. And I'm talking about before Hal starts going crazy. Right. So before that in the book, it's really just them, you know, traversing space. And, you know, I thought that was really uh, interesting. I, I do think it was one of the first movies that tried to take seriously what space travel would actually be like. For further context, we keep talking about the context. This movie came out one year before people landed on the moon. So this movie precedes uh, all of the Apollo missions. And, you know, from that, because the movie was so realistic to so many audiences, from that, it gave rise to the conspiracy theory, which I'm sure you've all heard, that the moon landing was faked in a Hollywood studio directed by Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick, yeah. <laughs> I, I love all the conspiracies around Stanley Kubrick. You guys, if you don't, if you haven't seen them, just go on YouTube and type in Stanley Kubrick conspiracies because it is awesome. The one I've heard the most recently is that the um, international film community had Stanley Kubrick assassinated because he released Eyes Wide Shut and exposed their child prostitution ring. Oh, the whole Illuminati pedophile Hillary Clinton. Uh, yeah. I knew he was involved. <laughs> yeah, you knew he was involved somehow, which, I mean, I just watched uh, Eyes Wide Shut recently, and that's not what that movie's about in any way at all. No. But whatever. You know, when you guys, you guys just believe what you believe. Yeah. I thought that that, like, like I said, I thought that the film and the book, you know, they did have these very discreet portions for this call of the wild story at the beginning, which gets a little bit psychedelic towards the end is very different than them being in space and having this like realism that they have and dealing with all that. And then you get how start going crazy, right? This section with the earth official traveling to the moon to view the monolith and the section with the discovery and how 9,000, those two sections are treated the most similarly by the book and the movie. I wasn't there for it, obviously, but it seems to me like that's the part of the story that they both focused on the most. When you look at the overall plot of 2001 with some hyper-intelligent, hyper-advanced alien race attempting to, I guess, evolve mankind into a higher uh, level of consciousness or being. I have trouble understanding exactly what the whole HAL 9000 episode really does for the story, what it represents, what it means to the story. Because before that happens and after that happens, the regular plot continues. Because I, we'll come, well, let's circle back around to this. Let's explain what happens at the end, and then we'll come back to the HAL thing. 
So after uh, David Bowman is successful in shutting down Hal, he continues on with his mission. He's briefed about the true nature of his mission, which is that years, a few years before when sunlight had struck the monolith they had un- uncovered on the moon, it had sent a signal to yet another monolith on a moon, a different moon in the solar system. So he travels there. He finds it. He gets in a little pod, flies out of the Discovery, attempts to land on the top of this monolith, but then in doing so discovers that it's not solid after all, but rather is a stargate that he falls all the way through. And my God, it's full of stars. This is where the book gets really, really, really weird and trippy and turns into a lot of fun to me. Yeah. This is definitely the most advanced part of the book. What happens next is David Bowman is guided around by some unseen force while aboard his pod and carried through like a intergalactic parking lot and like an intergalactic like switchyard type situation and all the time thinking that he's doomed and that he's going to be smashed a bit or killed or whatever. And then it becomes apparent that if whatever's controlling him wanted him dead, that would have happened a long time ago. Eventually it takes him to, which is something they left out of the movie, but one of the coolest scenes in the book, and again, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, is this really amazing scene where his pod comes up to near a giant red sun and a smaller sun is orbiting it. And when it gets close at certain points, when it reaches perihelion, a fire vortex is created between the larger sun and the smaller sun and like a that bridges them. And he witnesses energy beings migrating from one sun to the other via this flame vortex. How crazy is that? That was so dope, man. It was so... It, it I is, was like, what? It was one of the coolest... <laughs> mo- and it doesn't make it into the film. You know, you don't see anything like that in the film. And it is one of the craziest, wildest, most fantastic science fiction things ever. But, you know, 1968, Stanley Kubrick's like, hey, fuck you, Arthur. How am I supposed to film that, dude? You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was like, come on, man. But, you know, Arthur C. Clarke wants to write the science fiction book he wants to write. So they, they agree to disagree and, you know, have some separate content in the book and film. Well, yeah. And, and that's something that is kind of an, uh, to think about Stanley Kubrick and his, you know, just uh, lording over this these pages that he allowed that to go out. That's yeah. kind of crazy because it really is a big deviation from the movie. It's a pretty significant situation to change, you know, and then after that happens... Hold on, hold on, though. Wait a minute. The, you, when I was reading the book, I'm gonna one more thing that it reminded me of. This section, I was thinking of you because it reminds me of contact. These things are called the Stargate. I mean, dude, they must have taken from the whole Stargate series and all those shows. That had to come from this movie because that is basically what they freaking created were Stargates. And if you think about it in contact, that's exactly what they created, a Stargate, right? Yes, absolutely. When reading Contact, I read it recently again, and the parallels to 2001 are for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a totally different story, but the nature of the aliens in Contact is very similar to the assumed nature of the aliens in 2001 A Space Odyssey. That is to right. say, they are so far more advanced than people that they basically have to dumb down what they're trying to show us in a ton of respects. At the end of um 2001, David Bowman ends up in a hotel room. His pod lands there and he's able to get out and look around in his hotel room and it looks really normal, but the food he tries to eat there isn't real. He could tell that it's created by a alien species as an attempt to make him feel comfortable. Just like in contact, right? Exactly. Just like in contact. Just like in contact. And that a very similar thing happens in contact where the main character's father is there, but it's not really her father. It's uh, an alien being making this projection and answering her questions as the father so that they will have something that they're familiar with. And there are definitely a lot of shared themes between the two stories. Absolutely. Incredible. Incredible. And yeah, don't forget Stargate, the movie, and then the series that's based on it, too. You know, and, and also tons and tons and tons of other science fiction. Oh, that's why we're talking about it today, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, yeah. the influence of this story and film are hard to oversell. Yeah. Superbly influential. No, it's why I'm glad I read the book, because, again, there was so much that I got out that I'm like, wait a minute. This was this explained so much about the movie, but also it really filled in 
the importance of this book and this story in the lineage of sci-fi. Absolutely. That's one thing I've I've found that when I fill in these gaps by by reading something that caused a stir in its day, something that was popular in its time, is that the more I read, the more this like patchwork comes together. The more it becomes less like a bunch of freestanding ideas and more like a quilt of ideas that build off of one another and become increasingly complex because the other ideas have already been, you know, absorbed by the minds of popular culture. And 2001 is a big patch in this quilt. Uh, And I I don't think anybody would deny that, you know, and probably to this day still considered to be the greatest science fiction movie ever made. And it came out 53 years ago now. That's the reason I wanted to do a podcast episode on just this, you know, and it's just one book and one movie crossover but i just think its cultural significance is just so great yeah in the pantheon of sci-fi it's just it can't be it cannot be overstated so yeah so then he has this like contact experience you know with these aliens now let me tell you something dude when i was in the freaking movie theater and this started where he like started tripping and had this like completely psychedelic experience where he traveled to, I don't even know what the place was. The, how, what do you even call where he traveled to? He doesn't. He doesn't even know. In the book, he doesn't know. He just he says it's stars. He had no idea how to map at all. Yeah. And so he travels to this place, and and it's watching this visually and being so baked in the movie theater. If you ever anybody gets a chance to see this movie in a movie theater, do not pass it up because I cannot overstate the difference between watching this at home and watching this in the movie theater. I mean, he really is telling visually such a cool, cohesive story, but not explaining too much. Yeah, it's, so it's cohesive. It's just not explicit. Yeah, it's not explicit. But when you start thinking about like these apes and these cavemen at the beginning and then where he goes, goes and he goes into this whole psychedelic surreal consciousness portal whatever it is and lands in this room at the end of it i was like wow i haven't taken a breath for freaking five minutes man that was crazy and it is it is it's a rush and one of the things that i think most people forget about one thing the movie has that the book doesn't is music and sound effects and the music in 2001 is obviously the use of all of the great classical pieces zarathustra and the Blue Danube and a number of other ones are like iconic now, you know, boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And at the time, it would have probably been considered a very dramatic, possibly even bad idea to use that, that kind of music in a science fiction movie, because obviously, you know, you're trying to be space age, cutting edge, that kind of thing. And to use yeah. cl- classical music. What synthesizers. Exactly. And that, that, yeah. that, was, that was the prevailing logic at the time. And they completely turned that idea on its ear and did it their own way. To great effect. But also, one of the things that I've noticed on this most recent rewatch is the amazing score that they created for it. And I don't know what exactly you call that kind of sound effects, but the terrifying, moaning, shrieking, wailing string arrangements that happen whenever the monolith is on screen. The kind of like, kind of stuff. It creates so much tension. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. And I was watching it thinking, why does this seem so familiar to me? And I realized that sound cue is ripped off in one of my other favorite movies, which is not a science fiction movie, but a movie I really like called The Witch. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Dude, that movie is so heavy. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's so atmospheric. You know, one of the reasons uh, it's so atmospheric is because the soundtrack or score to that movie lifts heavily from the, the monolith music and the wow. you know traveling through the stargate music yeah in 2001 you know watch them and compare them like you can listen to them online they're not exactly the same thing but you i think you'll agree that one influences the other oh that's so cool man that's so cool the other thing is this here's how important it is to the cultural landscape growing up before i got a chance to see kubrick movies because when you're like an eight-year-old you're not watching kubrick movies And if you are, you're not really paying attention to them. I was seeing The Simpsons and I was seeing Mystery Science Theater 3000. And I was seeing other things that made reference to 2001. So much, in fact, that by the time I got around to watching 2001, when I was, I don't know, 12, 13 or so, approximately, I already had a pretty good idea of what to expect from the movie because I had seen so many references to the movie in popular culture, from the monoliths to the apes, to the use of the music, to all of this th- these things. 
And it was really, I don't know, really refreshing, I'd say, to be able to put those references into context that way. And because of that, I feel like it had an even greater impact on me growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I saw the movie early and I, there's there's something about this movie. There's a maturity there that, you know, I saw it after Star Wars and everything. And I was like expecting something like that. I saw a lot of references like you. I saw the movie early. It didn't gel with me. It did, really didn't even gel with me till I, saw, I saw it in the theater. But you're right. Then when, when this movie really clicks with you. You go, oh, I get it. I get it. This is freaking awesome. Yeah, yeah, it, right? it does take a little bit of like waiting until you get it. Maybe if you haven't seen the movie or read the book and you're listening to this podcast episode, first of all, you know, no shame in that. You know what I mean? I There are so many works of film and fiction that are on my list that I haven't read yet. You know, it's impossible. I say this all the time, but it's impossible to see them all or read them all. So there's no shame in not having seen this. And I'm sorry if I yeah. we spoil the plot for you, but... Like I said, I basically had the plot spoiled That's for what we're here for. Yeah, exactly. We're here to spoil plots, man. You know, speaking of spoiling plots, there's one thing I want to talk about, okay. which is the, the Star Child, okay? Mm-hmm. So in the book, he is the Star Child then, right? Am I right? Yes, yes. Bowman, the astronaut, our protagonist, is the Star Child. Right. And he is reborn again, but on a higher evolutionary plane, on a higher dimensional plane, I would suspect, because he's just floating in space, unprotected, but invulnerable as well, like nothing is hurting him. So after this psychedelic surreal experience, he's reborn as the Star Child. Right. He levels up in his evolutionary path, and then he reappears over the Earth. Is that right? I suppose so. From what I remember of the book, I haven't just read it. I can't remember every plot detail, but I don't think he's over the Earth in the book, but he is over the Earth in the movie. No, I think he's I think he's over the Earth in the book. Maybe so. It's very possible. But I think the implication there would be that in the same way that they use the monolith to teach Moonwatcher, the proto-human, to use tools in order to advance their culture, they're going to use David Bowman, now the Star Child, to advance human culture. Uh, Again. Okay. All right. He's been one-upped, and maybe he can teach others. Okay. So this doesn't follow through with what happens in 2010, the year we make contact, the sequel or any of the other sequels exactly, which I read 2010 several, several years ago and haven't had a chance to reread it for this. But from what I can remember, it's something of a rehashing of this story where another crew goes out to find out what happened on Discovery. But the people aren't suddenly more advanced or aware. They made a movie about that, right? I I know I saw it when I was a kid and it's like, yeah. I think that's generally the reaction to that movie is just kind of like, meh, it's not directed by Kubrick. I don't know. We'll see about that. Yeah, right. Well, that actually brings me back around. I said we'd uh, circle back around to it. I often wondered about exactly what Hal means to the plot, except for having a an antagonist. But he's a short-lived antagonist. And he's also, I guess you could call him a um, anti-hero in a way as well. Because in truth, all Hal is trying to do is fulfill his mission. And after he miscalculates and uh, kills crew members, he realizes that he's in mortal danger. And then every, all of his actions before that, after that are trying to preserve his own life because he's hearing transmissions about shutting him off. And for a supercomputer being shut off is it's death, you know, for an artificial, artificial intelligence. So I think it's reflecting of like human struggle to survive. But I also think that they're hinting at the idea that As these unfathomable celestial beings toy with human minds, so do humans toy with the minds of machines and pump them full of all the information they need to transcend onto a higher metaphysical plane, which is what Hal ends up doing. And this really illustrates the theme of the entire book and movie, which is evolution. Absolutely. Evolution of the apes, evolution of Bowman, evolution of our tinkering with robotics to all of a sudden giving birth to AI, then all of a sudden to these aliens who have transcended and gone ahead and become like these radioactive beings, right? Right. All in all, it would be hard to not rate both the novel and the movie in the top 10 all time in terms of the importance of science fiction, at least to me. Oh, dude. Even though they're companion pieces and they're slight variations on the same story, I think they both stand up on their own without the other. That is to say, 
I went quite a while in my life having seen only the movie before I read the book. After reading it, I did realize, oh, I should have read this all along. You know, it really enriched the experience of seeing the movie. Like you say, you could read the book without seeing the movie ever and still get all of the same ideas in your head that you get from the movie. It would still offer up all of the same lessons is what I mean to say, I guess. Yeah. No, I, it was dope, man. It was dope. I really enjoyed both of them. And uh, I think they're amazing. And I, you know, we talked about it last time about the number of movies that were so influenced by this. And, and my favorite of those movies was released just a few years ago, which was Moon with Sam Rockwell. Absolutely. And it was directed by and written by Duncan Jones, who is uh, David Bowie's son. Talk about a star child. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. So, the, I mean, that was for me the closest, it, just the aesthetic of Moon, the way it was filmed. The, Absolutely. The, they, they had a Hal who was played by uh, Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really, really freaking good. If you guys haven't seen Moon, that is among the best low budget science fiction movies ever made. Ever. I think it's one of the best science fiction movies made, period. It definitely enters the the pantheon of greatest of all time. But when you look at it in terms of the budget, then you really can see how great it is. Sam Rockwell is also one of the most underrated actors in all of history, in my opinion. Dude, he kills it. He is so freaking good, man. I could Uh, watch it right now. I've seen it a million times. Maybe we can get Duncan Jones to be on our uh, podcast. (sighs) I follow him on Twitter, so maybe he'd be willing. (laughs) That would be so cool, man. I would love that. That would be awesome. All right. Well, that was 2001. At first, when you mentioned this episode, I was like, yeah, 2001. Am I really going to read the book? But now I am so happy that I did. I think most people would feel the same way. You know, if if you're like a little hesitant to read it, it's not an especially long book. You know what I mean? It's not 400 pages long. I think it's like 230 pages or something. It reads pretty easily. It's a little bit of science writing in it, but not too bad. So if you haven't read it, I think we'd both recommend it. And obviously, if you haven't seen the film, you've got to get on that, man. Got to get on it. For me, you know, I graduated high school in 2001. I turned 18 in 2001. So there's that extra added significance to it as well. You know what I mean? So there's that. For my age, it certainly hits. All right, man. Well, that was a great one. That was one of my favorite episodes we've done so far, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, dude. Well, enjoy the the new year, everybody, and uh, be cool to each other. And uh, let's hope the simulation resets, man. All right. Peace. Adios. X-ray Delta-1, this is Mission Control, 2049er, transmission concluded.